Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Today, I'm really excited to have my friend Paul Daniels on the podcast. Paul is the Chief Revenue Officer of Intelligent Contacts, where he's responsible for growth, strategies, acquisition, and partners. He's also the founder of Peak Results, a strategic advisory business that specializes in creative problem solving. And he's a public speaker oftentimes talking about the how to solve problems by approaching them from the periphery and creative perspectives, something that he leverages his dyslexia to do himself and help others do as well, which we'll talk about here on the podcast. So without further ado, let's dive into a very, very fun and eye-opening episode with Paul Daniels. All right. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to, glad to have you. So just to, to kind of kick things off for context for listeners, I know you, you're, you're working on a few things right now. What do you, you know, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on right now. Yeah, uh, I'm the chief revenue officer for a uh, communications and payment software company. That's my day job. In my spare time, I run a strategic advisory firm that counsels our clients on creative problem solving and new product and solution development, market expansion, sales, marketing, product alignment, those kinds of things. And then um, in my spare spare time, I do some public speaking. Yeah, I don't sleep very much. So that's what happens. You know, I was 200 pounds, <laughs> six foot tall, full head of hair. And then uh, I, I started doing all this stuff. So look at what happens when you don't sleep. Right, right, right. Well, you have, I mean, not uh, too far off on this, but you're Aren't you like a 4 a.m., 5 a.m. person? Like in, in, as a. Yeah, about 4 4.30. Yep. What's your morning routine? Why are you up that early? It's a long story, but I started doing that because my mom was an early riser and they worked. My, both my parents worked, and it was the only time I get to see my mom in, during the day. So I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd go in and I'd sleep on the floor in the bathroom because that's the first place that she would go. And so I just got used to getting up. There's something about being awake when other people aren't. My body's just used to it. I like it. Get out, do a little running, and I'm good to go. Catch right. me at six o'clock at night. I've got no creative thought left. Yeah. <laughs> Everything happens, you know, from five in the morning till six. Yeah. We met through the Sales Leadership Foundations Forum, and, and you've been a really active member. And I really appreciate your help with, with getting conversations started and getting people in. Like you've been a, a huge help there. But you, I mean, you're in DFW, which is where I was for, for 15 years, but we didn't meet until I was in, until I was in Baja through, you know, through the, through the forum. And one of our early conversations, you mentioned a few things, like you, you did an exercise and you talked through a few things that really changed the, like a paradigm, it was a paradigm shift for me. Like once I, once I heard it, I couldn't, I couldn't unhear it. And, and some of the perspectives were shaped that you shared with me were shaped by growing up and living with dyslexia. And like, would you mind 
sharing how how dyslexia has shaped like certainly your i mean your your leadership style we've talked a little bit about that but the your life how has dyslexia played a a, a role in that yeah i was diagnosed with dyslexia at age 40 so growing up with dyslexia not knowing you know the the things that i heard from teachers and others and slow lazy not smart not going to go very far those kinds of things yeah school school no, school wasn't tough. School sucked. Mm. It was really, really hard. But I think it's common with many dyslexics, that, especially those that aren't diagnosed and don't have resources to, to help remediate, we learn to learn differently. And so what it did was made my all my other senses come alive. And so I, I got really good at body language and listening to the tone and the percussive beat of people speaking and their hand movements and grabbing just anything that I could to try and figure out what the heck are they talking about? Because they're reading from this page that I can't read, but I need to know this. So it allowed me to, to learn how to persevere and be tenacious, but it opened up a whole other group of senses that just were lying in wait um, to help me take what was being taught and to learn but not in a traditional way. It was interesting, and, and it certainly gave me an understanding of people and how they tick, really keen on understanding what makes people motivated or demotivated, and learning that from a whole host of people. For me, I would need every possible personality type just to get through a school day, from an administrator to a teacher to introvert, extrovert, uh, jock, academic, all of those people, I needed all of them just to figure out what was going on. And so I kind of became a student of the human condition, I guess, mm-hmm. might be a way of saying it. It certainly has informed the way I see the world, made me a little bit more empathetic, maybe, than folks that don't have disabilities. But, you know, we all have weaknesses and we all have strengths and your your strengths and your weaknesses, they don't determine your value. You, you determine your value what you're going to bring to the world. So it's been a great journey, especially since age 40. And I figured out, oh, hey, I'm not really that stupid. I just, uh, I learned it from you. That's really fascinating. The first time you told me that, it, it, it floored me, like thinking about it at, at 40, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and realizing that at, at this point. How did you finally get diagnosed? Like, what was that story? How did you, how, what led up to that? Yeah, it was our daughter. Yeah, our daughter was having difficulty in school. And my wife and I, we're both babies, so we never grew up with younger siblings. And we were like all in parents. There isn't a book that's been published that we haven't read. And so we're very engaged. Yeah, we're, we're those parents. Mm-hmm. And our daughter, who just graduated summa cum laude with a master's in, in child and family therapy. Wow, congrats. Was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was seven. And at that same time, as they talked through it, I went, oh, yeah, I, that's me. I get that. No, I, I, yeah. They said, oh, really? Would you like to be tested? <laughs> sure. I'm paying for it. Might as well. Right. <laughs> right. And was it, when you found out, was it a, did it feel like a burden or did it feel like a burden had been lifted? A little of both. Dyslexia doesn't, doesn't go away. But with dyslexia comes some pretty incredible innate skills 
that are only present in like 15% of the population. 15% of the population have dyslexia. About a third, 30%-ish of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Wow. And 40% of self-made millionaires are dyslexic. So it's been fascinating for, you know, since age 40, and I've referenced things before that, as I have learned more and more about this set of super skills that dyslexics have and the number of dyslexics that have impacted history, it's been somewhat liberating. And I'm excited because many of those skills can be learned. They don't just have to be innate within you. And I, I love sharing that with people. Yeah, You do. And some of these, I mean, Richard Branson is a, is a pretty famous example. There are some other pretty famous examples though, right? Yeah. John Lennon, just tons of actors, Thomas Edison, Einstein, right? E equals MC squared, yep. dyslexic. Henry Ford was dyslexic. Wow. JFK was dyslexic. So there's, there are, I've heard this stat, but don't quote me on it, that NASA in their recruiting, about 50% of NASA is populated with people with dyslexia because um, we, we see patterns where other people don't see patterns. And obviously you need that in a space program that is using, you know, a gazillion points of data to get from point A to point B and all of that stuff. It's kind of fascinating. And there are tons of people that aren't famous that are making differences around the world because of dyslexia or because they have learned some of the skills that, that dyslexics have. Well, some of the, I mean, some of the numbers that you just, that you just cited, the statistical significance of that, you know, I mean, the 15% of the population has, has dyslexia, but 30% of entrepreneurs. And I think you said 40% of, of millionaires, like that's a, that's fascinating. Do you, when you were talking about some of the, the skills that you developed that, you know, in terms of reading body language and tonality and other things. Those sound like things that can be that can be learned, but they when you were saying them, I kept hearing EQ, like emotional intelligence. Is that what it is? Is it a is it a deeper you have to hone your EQ skills because you're having to get information from other sources, or is it something else entirely? I think you've landed on it. I'm not an expert at measuring EQ. I believe that what you're describing there is a natural byproduct of dyslexics that need to learn, even those that have been taught how to learn as a dyslexic still need to to use the awareness skills that they have in order to relate with people in the spoken word uh, through other ways other than the written word or, or reading out aloud. So it does play, it certainly plays into it. I don't know whether you could say that, you know, all dyslexics have a high EQ. Mm. I'm not sure, no offense, but I'm not sure that Henry Ford was, was a terrific leader and uh, had a high EQ. Never met him. You know, so I've read good things and bad things about him. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I sure appreciate what he did for the manufacturing industry and, and certainly has a legacy there. And, and a lot of people have that same impact in their community, their family, whatever. Well, there's certainly a pattern of, if not EQ, 
of being able to see what others can't or see things, see things in a different way. And, you know, so Henry Ford, you know, there was, you know, there's this, this horse and buggy thing. And he says, ah, we're going to go, we're going to go a different, different direction. And he, even at the time, like he was, he was a very kind of abstract thinker and, you know, he just the, where he took the business and how he did, but, you know, Richard Branson and, and others. And I think, I mean, even, even you on the, you know, behind you is a, is a light that's made of, you know, car parts like you, I mean, you're, you being able to see what isn't there. And I, I guess part of that's pattern recognition, but how does that, is that a function of having had to learn through different means that you potentially just see things differently than other people? Yeah. So, you know, the, the world is, is your oyster, right? That, that, that phrase um, for dyslexics and, and frankly, for anyone that's willing to expand their, their perspective, there is so much in the world that's available to be offered up, to be used as input to problem solving, solution creation, process development, just personal development, interest in other things. It's, um, I think it was Van Gogh or Casso, I can't remember which, that said that they were a slave to their eyes. And so for dyslexics, we, we kind of are. It, there's uh, scientific uh, proof that dyslexics have a a broader peripheral vision. We see things more clearly in the periphery than those without dyslexia, but that can be learned. That's something that I actually spend time with executives and as I'm coaching and, and talking through. You know, you and I had done that once mm -hmm. before. If it's so right, we'll give it a shot now. If the listeners and viewers want to, to try it, I'm happy to share that with you. Love to. Absolutely. Please. Let's do it. So, just imagine you're like in a, a field, you know, a mountain field. It's a warm, warm sun. There's just a slight breeze that's cool. Um, there's lots of space around you. And you're looking at, you know, that goal that you have in front of you or the challenge that you have in front of you. And, and you're looking at that from your perspective. So, you know, you, if you place your hand over your eye, and, and for those of you that are listening, don't do this if you're driving, but you place <laughs> your hand over your eyes so that you can't see something in front of you, right? But you can move your eyes up to the right, to the left. You can look down. Okay, and you can take your hand away. So what you saw is the periphery, right? That's your peripheral vision. And if you take it a bit more theoretically, that's peripheral awareness. Now, so you're still back in that field and you're looking at whatever that challenge is in front of you, that goal that's in front of you. And typically, we'll make plans based on what our perspective is. So. What did we do last year in order to um, to reach our goals? How did we a challenge? How did we overcome a challenge like this in the past? What are some of the people in our industry that are good at overcoming these kinds of challenges? But when you're using peripheral thinking or peripheral vision, you can now look to the right, or excuse me, to the right or to the left, and you can now focus in on that area. So you look to your right, and you look over, and you spend some time. Now, now move your body theoretically, 100 yards to that spot, and now look back at your goal. So what do you see? You, you see it a little bit differently, a different perspective, right? You've got a different view of it. And we can do that by moving 100 yards each way all the way around that goal. And you can see that goal in a 360-degree view. Very common. Anybody that's been to business school or an MBA, you talk about a 360-degree review or seeing the issue from all angles. The challenge then is 
that's still from your perspective with all the things that you're bringing to the table, good and bad, you bringing that to the table from that 360 degree view. True peripheral thinking goes that 100 yards to the right. You stand there and instead of looking just at your goal, you look around and you find there are other people that in that other space, maybe a different industry, and they're working on their own challenges and they've got their perspective. Spending time with them and learning how they've overcome challenges. How did they? How does a guy that runs a bakery in Malaysia deal with supply chain needs? Can I apply that to a telephony company or a software company in Canada? Sure, maybe. Their lessons then become part of, of your perspective. And as you expand that perspective, you spend a lot more time kind of looking around. Yeah, I'm not taking my eyes off. You'd believe me, I, I know there are people saying, wait, 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 Paul, how do I attack a goal or a challenge if I'm not looking at it? Mm-hmm. Not saying that you shouldn't do that. I'm saying to attack, attack it effectively, to do it really well, using that peripheral vision is, and peripheral thinking is a new way of bringing in additional ideas, additional thoughts to the conversation. It's been coined as interconnected reasoning, lateral thinking, a variety of other things. But in essence, it's where dyslexics see things that others don't. We see patterns and we connect dots uh, from disparate pieces of information in order to create unique or new or novel solutions to problems or products that are you know, being launched into the marketplace. So it's fun to take people on that journey. And I know that you and your wife kind of did the same thing uh, after you and I talked about that, that very evening, you guys uh, had your own experience. Yep. We did. And it's like, once you do it and then you, you put it in the context of what, of what you've done. So it's, I mean, there's, there's a personal side of it, like just in terms of development, be able to see things from, from different perspectives and, you know, there's, but there's a business aspect that you've, that you've hit on. And when you, in that context, Henry Ford, Richard Branson, Einstein, like it's in that context, you go, gosh, that's where the new ideas, the thinking about things differently, the innovation, the, just the creativity, because there's oftentimes like a a tendency to want to do things the way that other people are doing them. And the real breakthroughs, the real unicorns are usually not that they're approaching something from a completely different angle. You said that you can develop this, like you can work on it. Mm -hmm. When I hear it, I think, well, the first thing I have to do, if I want to get better at this, what I have to do is pause. I have to find the discipline to pause, like, and to think about things differently. If it's not, if it doesn't happen to me organically, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that just attacks the goal straight on, I have to develop a discipline that says, wait, let me put my intentional blinder up a little bit and see if there are some other ways to go about this beyond developing the discipline to just say, okay, pause for a second. How can somebody get better at that? Yeah. So with my clients at the strategic advisory firm that I have, one of the things that we do is set goals for expanding their life experience. So it may be sometimes we set a goal for them to find someone that is completely different than they are, completely different industry. And and I press even to get outside of, of not only industry, but the country that you're in. Find some people on LinkedIn and get to know them. Learning culture, learning people, learning the businesses 
that have virtually nothing to do with your business is actually pretty powerful. And it's, it drives a new sense of awareness for, um, for my clients and, and for anyone that's interested in doing that. So as simple as finding somebody and saying, look, I know it's kind of crazy. We don't have any connections in common at all on LinkedIn, but I'm interested in what you do. And so would you mind connecting with me? And maybe we just share a couple of in-mails or chat a few, few times because I've never thought about what it's like to run a, a bakery in Malaysia or to run a bank in Zurich. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's like. And if you're willing to share, I'd be happy to share, you know, what I've, what I do with my company, no sales pitch, just want to expand them. That's one very practical way. Another is if you can accept the fact that, that a lot of really great ideas are sort of those unicorns that you talk about are the amalgamation of other proven solutions sort of reassembled in a, a unique way, then there's no problem with looking in the history. You've, you've got plenty of reference for your history, your back backstory, your history, finding other people's history, right? The, the application of Henry Ford's production line, that wasn't really revolutionary, sorry. That actually came out of post-World War II or, or before that, it's part of the Kanban system. It, it morphed into just-in-time inventory, which has been morphed into ERP, which has morphed into resource planning, which is right. So it's just certain truths or truisms that have been applied elsewhere. So when you learn those, being able to tap into those and say, well, what of that could apply as a component to the solution challenge that we're facing now? I'll stop because I think I'm, I've rambled a little bit, but obviously I love the topic. And it's played a big part in how, you know, how I lead teams and, and it's played a big part in the success that I've been fortunate enough to have uh, over the last, you know, I'll just say several years. I'm not giving out my age. <laughs> 40-ish. You were just, uh, you just found out last year. Yeah, that's right. It was just last year. I was 40. Yeah, 41. A couple of decades ago. No, as you're, it's a great topic because I, you know, I sit up straight when you start talking about it every time. And because I'm, I'm real, I'm so fascinated and my brain just goes into so it's, it's so applicable in many facets of business and in life. I hear one, one thing is when you, when you talk about going out and engaging people, you may not have similar interests with or connections with, or something like for purely for the, the purpose of diversifying your thought, like adding a different perspective into what you do. And there's a, there's, you know, an obvious tendency and part of its human nature to want to, to click up with people that you, that you agree with, which I, which I understand, Sure, but intentionally going out to, to add diversity and other thoughts, I think is, is really cool. And the other probably related aspect of this is your leadership style. Like that's in order to do that, you have to be a, a humble enough person to at least acknowledge that there are other different perspectives that are just as valid as yours that you can learn from. Is that a function of your, does that play into your leadership style or do you think it's, or, or how does it play into your, to your leadership style? Maybe. Absolutely. You know, it started by recognizing my weaknesses and coming, being forthright since age 40, I've not had a challenge very often by telling people, look, I'm dyslexic. So if you hand me piece of paper and put me on stage and say, 
okay, read this. That's not going to happen. If you give that to me the day before or give me a couple of hours to work through it and digest it, yeah, you bet. I can do that. Or if you just say, hey, here's a topic, Paul, go talk. I can do that too. So it's learning that weakness and then being honest about the weakness. And so learning, Sun Tzu said it, if you take the whole the whole battlefield kind of thing out of it. Sun Tzu said, you know yourself, you know your enemy, basically know the battlefield, and in a hundred battles you'll never be, you'll always be victorious because you'll only choose the battles you can win. You'll know yourself and your strengths, your weaknesses. You'll avoid challenge things that are that play to your weakness. So a weakness is not the same as an area of improvement. Right. A weakness is something that I'm not I'm never going to be six foot tall with full headache. And so <laughs> that's not going to happen. So I can never be that. So I might as well just embrace what I am and know that if I'm if it's required that I be six foot tall, I'm not the person. I'm not the right person. So using that and understanding that with the teams, I go through an exercise when we bring people on and um, and I ask, be honest, strengths, weaknesses, area of improvement, show that explain what the differences are and say, my goal is to help make your strength the best contribution to the company. My goal is to help you stay accountable for those areas that you do want to improve in. And my other, my last and most important goal is to protect you from your own weakness. So if you can't do this, now, obviously, if it's part of the job requirement, then we wouldn't be bringing them on. But if you're not, if you just can't do this, fine, we'll find a way to protect that because the strength is the value that we see in you and how we want to use you. So being humble, yeah, getting kicked in the teeth plenty of times, that'll humble you too, right? Being told that you're not smart or whatever. But it also helps with empathy and realizing everybody has something to contribute. There's no one out here, in my opinion, that wants to, that isn't in business because they just kind of want to sit somewhere. Mm -hmm. At least not in the companies that I've been in. Certainly there are people that hang on and, and whatnot, but the people that, you know, that I want to be around are the ones that are moving forward and learning new things and, and, and trying new things and are willing to fail, even if it's publicly, in order to learn more and faster. When I was really early in my, in my management career, one of the first books that I read was Marcus Buckingham's first Break All the Rules. And it was perfect timing because it was very early in, in formal management, but it was, you know, the, it was eye-opening to read strengths-based management, like leading people based on strengths. And, you know, what the, I think he even uses in, in the, in, in the book, it's been many years What the, you know, the salesperson that maybe isn't organized. Well, try as you might, you're probably not going to make that person organized. What's what you may be better doing is better off doing is focusing, leveraging the strength better and just finding ways to offset the weakness, whether it's through processes or other people helping or, you know, whatever it is, but you're going to expend a lot more energy trying to get an unorganized person organized than you would be. You're going to get way more effort or, or way more output if you, if you focus on that strength. So I, that really, that resonates with me. Absolutely. And, and I'll take that a step further. So for, for those that are listening that, that are professional sales people or leading sales teams. When I talk about strengths and weaknesses and areas for improvement and the cohort that we develop within our company, that expands out and that whole view of life expands out to include our, our clients, our prospects, our partners, 
or our coopetitioners. Okay, I'm dyslexic. I can make up that word, but you get the <laughs> idea, right? So it's all of those taking that mindset into every meeting to bring out the best in, in people and to recognize that they've got weaknesses too. Maybe my solution can help in a weakness area. Maybe it can exaggerate or enhance their current strengths. I'm not sure, but recognizing, you know, we're, we're all human. So there's, it's not a perfect one among us. I mean, you're pretty close, right? You're probably as close as I've seen, but there's not a you know perfect person out there. When you talk about the, you know, going on stage, it, we're, we're the exact opposite. If you throw me on stage and say, Ray, here's a subject, go talk about it. I am almost certainly going to sound like a buffoon. Like I am not going to know it's, you know, it's the anxiety kicks up and there's, you're conditioned for it, you're trained for it, and it, it plays into a strength. And in, I guess in some ways, and that's not unusual. I mean, public speaking is like this, one of the most, you know, one of the scariest things for people. You've managed to take what could be perceived to be kind of a, a disadvantage with, with dyslexia. It's played into it being a big advantage for you, like as a, as a speaker and in your leadership style and your creativity and innovation. And harnessing that, like that transition, like taking something that's potentially perceived to be a weakness and turning it into a strength. What, as you went through that process and as you thought through that, are there lessons that somebody else could take to do the same thing with one of their weaknesses, air quotes, with one of their weaknesses that may not be dyslexia? Were there lessons that you think are applicable to just turning that, turning that into a, into a positive? Sure. Of course. It you know, with every negative, there's a positive. So yes, you may have a, a, an area of weakness that is it's not going to get better with effort, but there should be a correlating area of, of strength. And it's finding that the strength and what fuels that strength and spending time really developing that strength. I know you've heard that if you overplay your strength, it can be a weakness. And that's absolutely true if you really did say, hey, Paul, here's a topic, go talk on it. And you said, astrophysics, I'm toast. Um, <laughs> it's probably going to turn out more like improv. And I might be up there for four minutes before they boo me off. Uh -huh. But you know, I'm willing to try. <laughs> for anyone that has a weakness, a given weakness, maybe it's uh, finance, maybe it's just numbers don't make sense, spread spreadsheets don't make sense to me. That's fine. What does make sense to you? And how do you, how does that relate with the people that you're working with as a team that you're selling to as a prospect, as a prospective provider of a solution and honing in on that? And I'll go back to what we talked about early on, right? And, and that's the more experience you have, experiences you have, the more you have from which to draw, right? So I'm like I've really been super blessed in my career. I've counted up the other day, 21 industries in 26 countries on six continents. So I've served clients in 21 industries, 26 countries, six continents. I've been exposed to a lot of different kinds of business, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different weather patterns, you know, just mm -hmm. tons of things, all of which can inform the way I interact with and hopefully it's a way that engages them and brings out the best in them. And I think the same is true for anyone with me because it's just experiences. You may not even know that you're, you can 
do martial arts or ride a bike for a hundred miles. Mm-hmm. You may think it's a weakness. Well, maybe tried it. Go give it a shot. That's a, actually, I wrote down this question as you were talking, like, how do you differentiate between, because like, I, I get that weakness isn't necessarily the same as area of improvement. Like if, if the job requires six foot, like it's, yeah. you know, it is what it is. How do you, if I was trying to, to assess, is this a weakness that I'm just, you know, it's probably a hard no or an area of improvement that if I muscle up and turn on the grit machine and I can improve this, is there, are there any tips that you have on differentiating between those? Yes, there is a clear delineation between those two. And the way I help my team delineate is describing that an area of improvement is something that you want to and are committed to improving because you believe it, it, it will make you better at fill in the blank, better person, better sales, better leader, better whatever. An area of weakness is something that you recognize and have tried to improve again and again and again. And that's as far as it gets. But you've attempted. And so my reading level is about 10th grade, about between 10th and 11th grade. That's my reading level. And I've worked like crazy. And that's, that's really, that's it. That's where I am. Okay. So that's where I am. Now, that's a weakness because I spent all of my education years, college, postgraduate certifications, all of that, trying to get better and better and better at reading. And that's as far as I got. Mm-hmm. So I can claim that as that's a weakness. But if I haven't tried to improve it, it doesn't fall in that bucket. And right? so you, you can't just say, you know, I'm just no good at filling out expense reports. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried, Paul. I've tried a whole bunch of times. I'm just not good at it. Yeah, well, you know, that's, yeah, it may be a weakness you still have to do. Right. <laughs> yeah, I almost, it's very subjective. And so it's very difficult to, to hone in on this, but I, I almost, there's some, there's probably some distinction or some correlation to the amount of effort that you're putting in and the marginal output that you're, that you're getting from it. Like if it's something that, if it's going to require me studying 12 hours a day and I'm just going to barely move the needle on it, I may chalk that one up to a, as a weakness. Now I, I want to be cautious that, that I'm not lying to myself. Like, Hey, you're just not putting in the hard work, but when you know you're putting in the hard work and, and you're just getting very incremental, maybe that's one of the, the indicators that this may just be something that you acknowledge and just try to shore up as a weakness. Yep. I think you hit it on the head. You were much more pithy with your response than I was. So yes, if it's not moving the needle and you put in, you know, significant effort, that's going to be considered a weakness and it's going to go in that bucket. By the benefit of you actually defining it first. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We play off each other. Well, right. What is, so kind of transitioning into the, into the sales piece, why'd you get into sales? Why into management? Like what's your, what is your story with that? Yeah. I got into sales when I started my first company at 25. And it's because I had to. I was sales. Well, I was a whole company. So if, if it was a sportswear company, if, if this is going to sell, I have to go sell it. So, you know, I'm, it was definitely trial by fire. But there was passion, of course, behind it and, you know, belief in the product and, and those kinds of things. I sold that company and I joined a, a large international multinational company, about 110,000 employees. And they had a structured sales training, sales methodology, philosophy, all of that stuff. And things just really clicked. 
for me in, in that organization. And that's where I looked at the effort that was going in and the, the skill required to be very good at that and considered, look, this it's a profession like any other profession. It's a profession like a doctor, a lawyer. I'm not ashamed of sales. I'm ashamed that there are people that consider what they do sales. But sales is a profession. It's noble, absolutely noble. And frankly, I think everyone is in sales. Mm -hmm. But using that, that's sort of how I got into sales. And then it, it, it morphed from there into different kinds of leadership positions and so on, always with an interest on what is it that the market is needing? What is it that we provided? How can we make those two come together in a way that's valuable for everyone involved? In the sales trajectory, was there a distinct time that you said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for management. Like this is it. Or did it just happen organically or, or how did that evolve? Well, I'm not an incredibly patient person, so I'm not sure it was organic, you know, always pushing and, you know, joining that, that corporation, it was part of the plan. And to move into sales management was a stepping stone to what my ultimate goal was, which was to be a CXO of a 500, uh, Fortune 500 company. So I moved into sales management because I wanted more responsibility and a whole lot more or a whole lot less pay. <laughs> in sales management, you understand the, what I mean there. But in that process, I came to find where my strengths play, and that's encouraging people, seeing things a little bit differently, organizing groups in a way that is most powerful. And it was, you know, it was a great, great proving ground and has kind of carried me through. So it was part organic, I think, just because I, I felt uh, called to lead that I, I tended to lead internally, unofficially, um, informally, and, and was recognized for that and, and, you know, moved into management positions because of that. And then also taking that position seriously as a profession and you know, spending time and money and energy in improving my skills doing that. You know, you hit on something, the leadership, even like in the sales role itself and, and being a leader within the team. And that has been, I have seen that be a very consistent pattern with the, the salespeople that move into management and, and senior leadership and do it very, very well is that they were already leaders to begin with. They had a lot of influence within the team. You know, if they were able to positively impact the team or help with training or improve processes or bring ideas or get the team behind a tough decision, like when they, when those people tend to move into management and leadership, they're really just kind of extending on the natural strengths that they already exhibited within the team to a degree. Yeah, they're kind of given a title that they've been performing informally. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, there are certainly lots of leadership styles, all valid, but those that you've just described probably would fall in that bucket of, of a servant leader, of consensus builder, those kinds of leaders that, that tend to have a pretty positive impact on organizations sort of wherever they go. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that early you were, you were the whole company. So you've, I mean, you have experience with small businesses, large corporations, you know, global conglomerates. The, if you're in a small business today and you're in sales, you know, and you're thinking, I want to make the move into a big company or you're in a big company 
and you have an offer on the table to, to move into to sales or leadership at a small company. Were there, looking back on the differences between those, were there, are you able to, to kind of talk to the strengths and the weaknesses of, of getting experience at both or which you preferred? I think you've, if you haven't caught it already, I'm big into experiences, right? Trying food, even that you don't think you're going to like. It just anything that's going to expand my um, area of understanding and respect for that. So I've got huge respect for people that are leading within large organizations that tend to be more hierarchical. There's a certain level of, we'll just call it professional politic politics that you, you, you need to develop that muscle. Um, and in a small, medium-sized company or startup company, all of that sort of goes away. And the muscle you need is the one in your back because you're lifting everything. <laughs> you have to contribute beyond a job des- description. There is no job description that you're only going to do this from eight to five. And that's all you're going to do. You know, in, in a startup, it's all hands on deck. So all of those experiences are great. And I guess I've been fortunate to do both. I would say, like anything, going into an opportunity, you want to, to know yourself and know what you are good at, know where you're trying to improve. And when you improve, how that will influence the success or, or contribute to the success of the organization you're considering joining and what your weaknesses are. And if those can play in the environment that you're looking at, Mm -hmm. if you really like structure and asking permission from three people before you do something, then a larger organization may be better suited. And that's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. If you want to sort of own your own, own the success and the failure of, of doing something then you know, smaller business is going to be probably a, a a good fit. And I suggest people try both. But again, Ray, you've been an entrepreneur like your whole life. Mm-hmm. You've always had that entrepreneurial spirit and, and you moved around the world and have had all of those experiences. So, you know, I'd, I'd turn the question back on you. You know, do you think there's value in both? And is there something that would keep somebody from even entertaining a new opportunity in a, in a different structured environment? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I would argue that in a there are different personality types and different. I would going into a, to an organization with different strengths and weaknesses. I think the experience in both is really helpful. I think the, but they are so different. And you know, I mean, the, even within the small business world, there's, you know, there's your startup, there's your family owned business, you know, and there's a there's a huge difference between, you know, joining a team that wants to to triple revenue in eighteen months versus the family-owned business that's been doing what they're doing for 20 years and, and 5% next year is perfectly fine. In fact, that would be a home run. And the same is probably true within, within large organizations. You know, the, like the, you know I, was at, I was at the U.S. Chamber for a long time, but they allowed me to be an entrepreneur. Like they allowed you know, entrepreneurship to take place within the organization. So I, I was able to, I had the best of both worlds. And so if you can find that, that's really cool, you know, where you have... Yeah freedom and autonomy to, to test and experiment and use startup methods or, and also have the backing and the support and the stability of a large organization. But those, the number of large organizations that, that truly promote and allow that I think are, are few and far between, but it's, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it depends on what your strengths and weaknesses are because picking the wrong one could just be a, a misalignment that isn't even necessarily about a potential skill set, but more so a, a personality, personality conflict, you know? Sure. 
Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've seen that in, in people saying, yeah, I want to go to a large company because there's more security there. Oh. Right. Well, when <laughs> yeah. has, has proven anything, it's that the truism that the only thing that changes is change, right? Mm-hmm. Change has been here and will always be here in varying degrees. And we got a big dose of it this year. Yeah. One of the best speeches or, or messages that I've heard on big companies and stability is actually from Jim Carrey. And he has a, a I can't remember what it is. It's a, maybe a speech at a, at a college or something. And I'll, I'll find it on the, on the show notes, but he, he speaks to his dad. One of the reasons he went into doing what, what he does now was watching his dad basically play it safe and go the safe route, I, I think as an accountant. And at some point in his career, they just laid him off. And, you know, so he's invested basically everything. He didn't follow his passion. He didn't do what he was really, really great at or what was fun. And whenever I hear the security thing, it's, uh, that's always a, a flag to me. So yeah, they got a pretty good response from you. Yeah. Yeah. Physical reaction. That's right. Um, that's aversion. That's right. The, so you mentioned the, the experiences and I, I know that you're really big on experiences. What are some experiences or some stories that have affected how you how you build teams and, and lead them. Cause I have a, I have a, I have a real respect for your leadership style. And I know that it's authentically a, a, a servant leadership style. What are those experiences that led you to that particular style? Yeah. Thanks. Certainly knowing that I can't achieve on my own. Right. And knowing that being part of a team means giving your all to that team. Shout out to Bob Adams. who's been my mentor for decades. And I met Bob and in an interview at the Hyatt DFW airport as he was flying through and filling positions for this company. And there was something about his genuineness, his preparedness, and his authenticity that attracted me to it. Obviously, I believe I was the best candidate for the job. I asked for the job, but I also asked him, hey, you know, if this isn't going to work, I would love to learn from you. If you'd be willing to to mentor me, and you know, we fast forward. I got the job, and I've had the great pleasure of working for Bob twice, two different companies, and with him across a number of companies. And his ability to think ahead for what's best for the team and prepare for that really inspired me. At eighteen, I was a gymnast, and I broke my back, and so I've always had a bad back in my life. And we had quarterly meetings, so I'd come into the to the quarterly meetings and we'd have them around different parts of the country. And Bob knew that I'd thrown my back out and he met me, he met me at the door of this conference center where we'd rented some space for a, a three or four day, you know, huddle. And he met me there to help carry my bag, mm. my bag to the meeting room. Okay. So I'm, you know, my team's doing really well. We're performing well, but like, is this real? He's like carrying back. And of course the room is set up properly. And what I learned from him was that he, he was always there first. He was the first one there, last one to leave. And it was all about the team. It was about how can I create an environment that brings out the absolute best in everyone on this team? And so he managed to the individual. And he did the same thing with clients and prospects. You know, fast forward that lesson, I've applied many times in different situations. One was leading a team into to meet with a client. Um, we were finishing up our evaluation and we've been pressed for time. They they wanted to collapse the time frame and they said, you know, 
come in, spend two days with us, and then give us sort of your final proposal. And we you know, flew people in from all over the world, had about 25 people that were that on this team that were proposing. And, and frankly, the team stayed up 48 hours straight. That's what it took in order for that team to develop and present a viable solution. And for whatever reason, the buyer came in and he'd had a bad day when we went to present. And he he just kind of went off on the team. And I time out on the meeting, said, We're, I'd like to ask my team to, to leave the conference room, please. Um, anyone else can stay, but I need to speak with you specifically to the economic buyer. And we talked and I said, you know, I don't don't know what's going on. And obviously you're upset, but I can't allow you to speak to our team that way. That's not acceptable. And, and of course, he took that as a challenge and was angry with me. I said, again, I, you can yell at me all you want, but we're, we're done. I left and the team said, are we going back in? Nope. We're heading to the airport. We're going home. Great news is it wasn't a client really that we probably wanted to have. But when we got off the plane, some of them were connecting through DFW. I was in the front of the plane and people were coming off and I, I stayed and didn't leave. I, I made sure that I shook everybody's hand and told them how appreciative I was of them participating in that crucible to present what I thought was wicked awesome solution, which we would use later. And whatever they were feeling about whether they let it down or not, it's not true. The truth is you did a great job. And I'm not going to let anybody treat you that way, just as I would hope you would never want other people to treat me that way. Fast forward a few years and that same team, you know, really wanted to work on deals that my team was working on from development and a bunch of other organizational groups. And we did six months of that kind of work. And I took Bob's lessons and I was the first one up. I was the last one to sleep. And whether it was negotiating terms or making sure people had napkins for the pizza that we ordered at midnight, that was, that was my job. I wanted to make sure the team had what they need to be successful, put them in the best spot where we could be successful. We were successful, a couple hundred million dollar deal, um, largest in that company's history and, and uh, was a great win. Same thing, got off the plane after, after winning the contract and shook everybody's hand. And it was cool the number of people that were coming off that plane that were the same people that came off the plane after we you know, kind of left the other company. That's incredible. I love that. Those are both great stories and and just two sides of the exact same coin. Really, really great story. The on the Bob Adams as a as a mentor, the I guess this may be a two part question, but the what would you recommend? What stood out about him that led you to ask that question? Like, was it was it pedigree? Was it reputation? Was it prior conversations? Like, how did you know that kind of that quickly? And I'll stop there. Like what's, how did, what led you to, to ask that quickly? So I'm not sure that I can be really specific on all the things that, that played into that, partly because of that whole dyslexic thing. I pick up on body language and I pick up on the unspoken word and a number of other things. And there was something about this guy that was genuine, he's authentic. He was trustworthy. Obviously you want to you don't want to just throw your trust at somebody because you like them or they've got a great job for you or whatever. But there was something about him and, and he was prepared for our meeting. And he said, look, my goal in our, in our discussion is to find out what you're really good at. I want the very best from you so that I can see that. 
and don't worry about mistakes or anything like that or rambling. Just let's talk and get to know each other. And it was about a 90 minute interview. And he took copious notes, but they weren't, I could see any salesperson that's learned to read upside down will get this, right? I could see that he was marking down areas of strength and and then he would note where that's going to play within the team or a particular issue that they had that it was going to address or whatever. I'm thinking, man, he's really setting me up for success. He wants to see if what I have will fit with them. That was, I think that was probably the one of the tangible examples of why I wanted to do stuff with Bob, whether it was work for him, work with him, just know him, learn from him. It's been a great experience. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I've had some other mentors that didn't work out so well, but this, the two that I have that I go, our go-tos both have that same characteristic. Yeah. I have a couple that are, they're just lifelong friends now. Like they're just as close to me as anybody, Absolutely. you know, in terms of what I lean on them for. So similar type of deal where I, I serendipitously like through, through the organization that I was at, they, they were really good at developing people. They're really good at, at, and they just had really high caliber. Yeah. You know, it it wasn't a run of the mill type of organization. So, you know, when they provided people that were coaches or that were, it was uh, top notch, that's a benefit that I've had that I didn't necessarily earn. So if you're, if you're in a small organization or you don't work for somebody that you really want to, to mentor you. How do you go find, or how would you recommend going and finding a Bob Adams or a, or a mentor that you can really, really trust and, and put your, you know, that you could seek for advice on a, on a regular basis? Yeah, it, it's, it's keeping your eyes open for opportunities where you meet people. You know, just having that, maybe not front of mind, but pretty close to the front, where it's not an afterthought. But it's okay if it is an afterthought and, and you leave a, a networking event and you think, you know, that would be a really good person finding them again and, and then reaching out and asking, Hey, you know, could we spend some time together? I'm, I'm developing in my career and I, and I see the value of having mentors and I'd, I'd like to talk with you. Have you ever mentored anyone and those kinds of things? So just keeping your eyes open. The second I mentor two people a year and I take on that. And, and if it goes along longer than a year, that's fine too. And almost all of those come uh, as candidates for mentoring uh, through LinkedIn. There are people, so there's a way in LinkedIn that you can raise your hand and say, you know, I, I'm looking for a mentor. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish, or here's where I am in my career and where I want to go. And people that are sort of aligned with that will be notified and get a chance to interact and talk with folks. So there's not as many mentors, though I think it's becoming more prevalent now, and I'm glad to see that. Um, time is such a, a precious commodity that it's difficult, especially for people in, you know, in senior positions that, you know, have a day job and then on their spare time and their spare, spare, spare time are doing other things. But those that are willing to be mentors, they're absolutely. And they're completely invaluable. If there's one thing I would say to someone that's um, new in their career, whether you're an individual performer or you're leading a team for the first time, or you've been leading a team for decades, a mentor is, is not a nice to have. It's a must have. Yep. You've got to have somebody that you can have candid conversations with, spill your guts, look for help, ask for help. I'm not the person I am without the, my two mentors both happen to have the name Bob. <laughs> I look at mentorship almost like scaling learning. 
you know, like I, I get to benefit from people who are already really smart, already lifelong learners and really experienced. And they, they're imparting their knowledge onto me. Like I don't have to necessarily make those same. I get the benefit of their experience and wisdom. And so you get to scale learning in a way that you, you otherwise wouldn't, there's absolutely no way that I would be, that I would have done any of what I've done without the, without the, the benefit of incredibly generous mentor. So I, I second that if you have the opportunity and then, you know, if you have the benefit of great mentors, the, and you have an opportunity to, to pay it forward, I think that it's, it's really imperative that you, that you look for those opportunities. And when somebody comes along and asks the question, try to make the time if you, if you benefited from it. Exactly. And, and I've, uh, that's part of the agreement that I make with the, the people that I mentor that um, depending on where they are in their career, that in the next five years, hopefully sooner, that they will offer up to be a mentor to someone else. Yep. So that's part of our unwritten, but I'll write it down if I need to, kind of contract that says, I- I'm happy to do this, but it can't stop with you. It's got to continue long. It's smart. I, I mean, I remember asking, because at times I have felt guilty. Like, I'm like, this is a one-way street. I have nothing, I have virtually nothing in return to to give. and the only requirement has been when you have the opportunity, pay it forward. Like it's, they benefited from it. So it's a, it's a good, good cycle to keep going. And this may be the, the last question here. So we, I know you and I share, you know, many of the same perspectives on, you know, what, what goes into making a great sales organization and how to, how to get a team, you know, that, you know, build a high performance team in terms of results and culture in terms of engagement and, you know, with, with, with an emphasis on strong leadership, what are some of the most common mistakes that you've seen managers or executives, even CEOs make when it comes to building a great sales organization? Yeah. So there are a few, and I'll say these with the hopes that none of them offend the, uh, the, the folks that are watching or listening. And if it does, it's not intended. And if it does, and it's not intended, then maybe you should look at it. Truth alert. (laughs) If this, if this hurts, if it hurts, might it might be something area for improvement. Yep. If we ask our people, I want to say sales professionals, but our people, if we, if we ask those that are on our team to do something, let's make sure that it's valuable to the company. Right? Um, if, if I want a report of certain activities or whatever, and I can only get that out of the CRM, you know, Salesforce or whatever I'm using, but it is not helpful for the sales process, it doesn't empower the sales professional to achieve their goals, then I need to stop and ask, do I really need that? Or is there something in the sales process that I have not added because I'm asking for this metric uh, that I haven't explained the importance of to the sales organization? Um, So, you know, what gets measured gets done, but what gets done isn't always profit, right? A quick story back when Siebel, right, was the, the system. I uh, went to, or was leading the team, and we worked with some folks at Verizon, and they'd spent $33 million implementing Siebel, $33 million. And they had less than 10% adoption rate. Wow. Less than 10% adoption rate. So great opportunity. We had this business intelligence tool that could plug, plug and play. And within six months, they had 77% adoption rate. Why? Because all those things that they were asked to put in that were just such a pain, our system did automatically. So it was already in there. 
And it added a bunch of other things that the system didn't have that actually made them productive. So if we ask our folks to do something, we should make sure that it's it's worthwhile. So that's one of those things that you know certain new managers and people that have been around a long time say, well, it's just got to be done. It's not the same as doing your expense report. And Ray, you still have to do your expense report. <laughs> it's, it's a weakness, Paul. Can't do it. Yeah, well, we're going to see how long that's going to be because we've got some more work to do. One of the other things that I've seen not work well is putting someone in charge of sales that has no sales experience. It would be like putting a CFO in place that has no accounting background or finance background. It doesn't go well. So if your brother-in-law needs a job and you're the CEO and you want to make her, him, her, whoever, the chief revenue officer, chief sales officer, VP of sales, and they haven't carried a bag, know what it's like to live under a quota, to deliver, to walk that beat, I think you, you set yourself up for, for failure. The last, I guess, I'd, I'd say is that without a clear definition of the interaction between sales and all other departments, if we don't teach our people how what they do influences what others do, and if as leaders, our cohort leaders don't do that same thing, we're building silos and we're building an organization, not an organism. We're building things that are not interdependent, even though they really are. We're building those barriers. And I've loved doing that, going into you know, new companies and giving an overview and then sharing how this developer's work influences the tuition that this person is going to pay for their kid's college. When you start making things really personal, it becomes really personal. Wow. Right? And sales is not just a taker. Sales, yes, is, is kind of the pointy tip of the spear. But sales must give back to marketing, must give back to development, must explain to legal and to operations why we're doing, what we're learning. We're, we're in the field. What are we learning about? Operations needs to explain our operational boundaries so that sales doesn't get out over its skis. As the chief revenue officer here, I go home every night and I think about the 60 families that I'm responsible for. They're not all in sales. And the, the 60 families in this, in this you know, small company that my work is responsible for. And so, yeah, I need to make sure that we're selling, we're good partners and so on, because I know the interdependencies. I teach our teams those interdependencies. I, I don't let, yeah, yeah, I know. That's not a good answer. Mm-hmm. Show me that you know by respecting the fact that you just got to call a support desk on a client that you, you closed that isn't doing well. Know that there's an interaction there, and it may not be something you did, but know that there's, you know, this ripple effect. The butterfly wings flap all the time. It's really good. Those are those are some great points. It's and you hit on something like the I like the organism and organization piece. The but you hit on like the the revenue. So I've always liked revenue as a holistic because you it you can't count it until the job is done. Like if, you know, if you're, you know, I was at an organization once where, you know, you had sales and they focused on sales almost exclusively, but you couldn't count that on the income sheet and, on, and until, until the books left, right. Until the package is sent until the, you know, until the job is done. And so by almost by default, it creates this holistic, that's the scoreboard and sales is one component. It's all, but it's all one system with different parts working together and, and the output 
is, you know, if, if it's a car, it's speed. If it's, if it's a business, it's revenue. So I, I like that. Some great, great points in there. Yeah. You're spot on there. So this has been very, very helpful. I mean, I've, I've loved Thanks. talking to you. We're gonna have to do this at least a couple more times. This is, and this is too easy. Like I, 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 I could, we could go three times as long and I, because they're, they're, within your answers are more questions that I have. So let's, let's plan on doing this again. Absolutely. And I'll be bringing my surfboard with me and we'll do it in Baja. We'll do it in Baja. I think that that is, I'm game for that. That's, I tell people I'm in Baja primarily for them, like so that we can do, we can do team building. You can come on down here. We can, it's, it's for business. In the meantime, where can, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, the HTTPS, all that stuff, LinkedIn slash, and it's Paul Daniels, JR. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can also reach me at, uh, at the company I'm the CRO at paul.daniels uh, with an S at intelligentcontacts.com. Uh, you can find me on our website as well. Okay. And if you want to call me, email me first. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I was like, that's, that's gutsy, man. Because I, be, uh, I might be driving through Mexico on my way to Baja. There you go. It's not going to pick up this city. Coverage just isn't, good, isn't that great that's sometimes. Yeah. And then I will, I'll also add uh, that for, for anybody that wants to engage with Paul a little bit more, the Sales Leadership Foundations Forum is Paul is, is probably our most active member next to me on there. So if you, if you liked what you heard and want to engage and have some questions, uh, feel free to, to join there and um, start a conversation. It's a great forum. I encourage anyone that's interested to apply. I feel like a mentee when I'm on there. I'm learning a bunch. And since you've launched that, Ray, it's a it's an incredible community. Thanks. One that I've not seen in many, many years. So uh, kudos to you for developing it. And thanks for letting me in. Yeah, thanks. It's We all feel like mentees. That's the whole, the virtual mastermind nature of it. So uh, all learning from each other. Thanks again for your for your time. We will uh, we will catch up again. And everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position. You can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.